let's open in prayer and we'll look uh, this morning, um, Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, a new day, for which we find and remember that uh, your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for your abounding grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the church, for which we are a part of. And uh, we glory in your name. We rejoice in your name. May we hallow your name. May we grow here in the grace and knowledge of our Savior this morning, exalting you, that you would indeed be glorified and your people would be blessed, edified, and built up in the faith that we proclaim in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I'm perfectly aware that there is a controversy amongst the Bible-believing Christians as to the applicability of the fourth commandment. And we're going to speak about that before we close this morning. Uh, But there is, however, absolutely no controversy about the Old Testament observance of of the Sabbath, those under the Old Covenant. It was a day of rest. It was a day of obligation to the people of God um, under the Old Covenant. And the purpose of, of... The Sabbath for Israel was primarily, again, that these are God's people. These are my people, and this is how my people shall live. Even though he is Lord of all, he's Lord over all, he makes special claim to his covenant people, and they're called to keep this day holy. And here we see, notice in the command itself, it's a call of remembrance, isn't it? Remember, he says, is a call to remember the day. It's to be honored. It's to be kept distinct. In summary, in summary, we could say that we are to keep, if you were living in this day, we are to keep the day of rest holy. That's how they viewed it. So this is the first commandment we've studied thus far that is stated positively. There's only two of the Ten Commandments that are stated positively. It's the Fourth Commandment and the Fifth Commandment. Remember, he says. So if he says remember, there was obviously some knowledge of a Sabbath pattern before the Decalogue was given. Before Moses came down with the stone tablets, it was already ingrained in the mind of God's people that there's six days of labor and one day of rest. So remember means to observe. 
Observe the day. Notice the last phrase of verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So the very sentence there defines it. And how do you remember the Sabbath? Quite simply, you keep it holy. Set apart. It's a rest unto the Lord. And the Lord actually tied it together with his work of creation, which is very interesting. So this is not merely an activity of remembering that God rested on the seventh day, but it's an active embrace of that reality, to embrace it. God rested on that day for the benefit of his people in his graciousness. And we're, we're familiar with this terminology in the New Testament, a call to remembrance, amen? 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25 for which we ourselves would adhere to this morning as we come to the Lord's table. We do this in what? Remembrance of him. So to say remember the Sabbath is a call to enter in, to memorialize it, or to enact it. So Sabbath observance, once again, was another mark of Israel as God's people. So not only for the sake of the covenant, of those under the covenant, but any and all within the nation itself, which we see here. Notice, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you, sh- on it you, shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. So think about this. There may have been some temptation. The people of Israel in this day to say, okay, I'm going to give my sons the day off and I'll lay all the work on the daughters. And God here makes a preemptive strike. He says both sons and daughters will rest. And then one might reason, well, I'll give my kids, or I'll encourage my kids to rest, but the servants will make up for it. And here again, the servants will also rest, male and female servants alike. And notice, even the animals, the domesticated animals, were not to work. So if one reasoned, well, we'll rest, but I'll keep the ox treading out the grain, I'll keep the donkey circling the mill, God says, they shall rest. And even, even foreigners were to rest. If you notice, the whole social order here was to benefit from the day of rest. And God was very serious about that. Even the sojourner within your gate shall rest. And you know, God was so serious about this. As we read scripture, part of Israel's exile, if you remember this very famous passage in Nehemiah, and you can turn there if you want, Nehemiah is just... Uh, after Chronicles and Ezra. God was so serious. Notice in Nehemiah 13 and in verse 15, part of the exile was explained with regard to their breaking of the Sabbath. Verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys, and also wine grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. 
which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I ward them on the day when they sold food. Notice, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you from the time, from this time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and, and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor. O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So part of, again, part of Israel's exile is explained in them not adhering to the Sabbath. In this, we see it describes for us the relation between the security and safety of the nation of Israel and the profaning of the Sabbath. Very simple. Now, Sabbath means rest. That's what it literally means. It means rest. It means cessation from labor. It doesn't mean seventh, as some ill-informed seventh-day Adventist, Adventists will claim. Sabbath simply means to desist from labor. This was a gift from God to the people. This was not to be a burden. It was a blessing. So remember, beloved, God is speaking this command to a generation of slaves. For 400 years they've been in Egypt where their time was never their own. They were always under the heavy hand. They were told when they were to work. They were told when they were to rest. And it was others who who oppressively drove them with labor right into the ground. And God now stands up before them and he says, now here are the rules for my people. Very simple, amen? A simple, simple illustration of the people under the Old Covenant. But by the, time of, by the time of Christ, the Sabbath had become more than just a day of rest. Jesus, who kept the Sabbath, we know from Scripture, was in the synagogue on the Sabbath reading Scripture. And also, although Jesus observed the Sabbath... As we read the New Testament, we also come to find out that he is the fulfillment of Sabbath rest. Amen? He is Sabbath rest. When the Pharisees attempted to interpret the Sabbath to Jesus, Jesus made it clear, I am Lord of what? I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on to say, Mark chapter 2 and verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Of course, there's much corruption in the day. 
And that corruption came about from the likes of the pharisaical heresy or hierarchy, which resulted in heresy. And they invented all kinds of absolutely ridiculous laws in connection to the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 12, remember they're watching Jesus constantly. They're uh, continually accusing him of breaking Sabbath. He would heal people on the Sabbath. And he was about ready to heal a man with a withered hand. And in Matthew 12, it says, A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Okay, now as we go on, if we had two hours, there's so much more we could cover, but all in all, beloved, the greatest issue regarding the Sabbath is that it's been fulfilled in Christ. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the very fulfillment of Sabbath rest. We read it through and through the New Testament. Back in the Psalms, Psalm 95, God warns that those who do not heed his words will not enter his rest. Revealing for us that this rest far exceeds a Sabbath day rest, but is referring there to a messianic rest. Psalm 95, which is completely fulfilled in Christ. We get to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now the rest that Hebrews speaks about is indeed the rest of salvation. We know this, amen? It's the rest of salvation. Here we see both the present experience and the future expectation. We have that rest now, and there's a future expectation for the people of God of ultimate rest. Accomplished by the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paid in full. Paid in full. The penalty for our sins. So the most important aspect of Sabbath rest in the New Testament is that is that we rest in Christ and we rest from our labors, we rest from all self-effort in attempting to save ourselves by way of our own works. Christ did it all. So this rest is absolute rest, which is fulfilled in Christ and tied to belief. To belief. Hebrews 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So disobedience and distrust flows from a heart of what? Of unbelief, quite simply. Christ's fulfillment, here we see in the old covenant, it was a day of rest to desist from labor, as God did. We are to remember that day. God's people were to remember that day 
by way of the creation order and what God accomplished in six days. Now, here we are under the new covenant. Christ is our Sabbath rest. Now we ask the question, do Christians have a day in the cycle of their lives that is governed for worship to the living God? What's the answer, quite simply? Yes, absolutely. This is the commemoration. This is the the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Sabbath rest. And it's Sunday now that becomes the worship day of observance. And we know it now as the Lord's Day. The first day of the week. So when we get to the New Testament, what do we read? When, when are God's people gathering? When are God's people gathering corporately? 1 Corinthians 16 in verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of the week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Implying what? God's people met when? First day of the week. There's the instruction. On the first day of the week, set aside something and store it up, implying that God's people meet on the first day. When we get to Acts 20, on the first day of the week, verse 7, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, if you go on to read that account, in Acts 20, there's Paul. He's teaching in an upper room, third story, and uh, there's a young man in the room. On the first day of the week, they're gathered together, and Paul talked with them. He's intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech. He prolonged his teaching long into the night. There are many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and the young man, Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep, and he fell out of the window. This is a very encouraging uh, passage to those who preach. For the people who do fall asleep when you preach, and could be in a deep sleep while you preach, and I know who you all are. I know who the sleepers are. Every preacher knows who the sleepers are. It's encouraging that someone fell asleep under Paul's teaching and actually fell out of a window. He was such a deep sleep, right? All humor aside, it's interesting here. On the first day of the week, we were gathered. And no law has been given that we read in the New, in the New Testament to establish this day of meeting. This is far into the ministry of Paul. Many years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they still here are gathering on the first day. God's people. There's one example, or there's two examples. 1 Corinthians 16, the implication is they're meeting on the first day. Acts 20, they're meeting on the first day. Another example comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, where John is about to receive the vision of the apocalypse. And in, Re- in Revelation 1.10, we're told that he was in the spirit on what? On the Lord's day. And everyone John was writing to, the seven churches in Asia Minor, knew exactly what he was talking about. 
When he said Lord's Day, he meant Sunday. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was in the Spirit on Sunday. So in the New Testament, there's already a day, Sunday, uniquely referred to as Lord's Day. So John could easily assume that everyone uh, everyone who would be a recipient of this letter would understand that. He doesn't take the time to parenthesize this. Now, there's all kinds of testimonies, beloved, to the fact of Lord's Day meeting going all the way back to the second century. This is a customary way of referring to the first day of the week. And the title for Sunday is commonly found in many many early uh, Christian writings and has continued throughout church history right down to the present. And you know, the early church, they longed for the Lord's Day. They longed to gather with God's people in the first century to sit under the preaching of God's word because just to survive the week with your life was something to rejoice over. Amen? They didn't put it off. They anticipated Lord's Day. Jews and Gentiles alike, Jewish converts, Gentile converts, met on the first day. Now, as much as they anticipated the Lord's Day, there's many Christians in our day who view the Lord's Day as though if you want to enjoy doing something, the Lord's Day isn't the day to do it. But if there's something that's not enjoyable, well, save it for the Lord's Day. That's almost the way they look at it. And the common attitude of many Christians is that they see the Lord's Day as some kind of a denial of enjoyment or liberty. But see, the Lord's Day is not, an, is, is not some subtraction to our lives. It's an addition. It's a blessing. And when you... St- when you go through a study like this, unfortunately, the people need to hear it the most are the ones that aren't here anyway. <laughs> I'm not talking about people just missing this. I'm talking about the people who are absent on Lord's Day more than they are present, unfortunately. So in the experience of the church, the matter of, quote-unquote, Sabbath-keeping became a great Controversy. Keeping Sabbath. So, we ask the question now, in our last 20 minutes, what does the Lord expect of us on his day as New Covenant believers? And there's three main views that we want to look at. Okay? The first view is what's known as Seventh-day, or Seventh, yeah, Seventh-day Sabbatarianism. You've heard of Seventh-day Adventists. You've heard of Seventh-day Baptists. And any time you draw, are drawn into a conversation with a Seventh-day somebody, typically they'll ask you, do you what? Brother, do you observe the Sabbath? If you've never run into one, that's typically the first question they'll ask. Not all, but many. And then when they realize that you worship on Sunday, they'll say, oh, so you're breaking Sabbath. 
Oftentimes, they're naturally given to legalism. They're very legalistic. Not all of them, but some. They'll do nothing from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. But we see throughout the New Testament a gathering of God's people on the first day, known, as I said, as the Lord's Day. There is not even a mention, beloved, in the New Testament of a seventh-day practice for the church. Well, you say, well, Paul went into the synagogue on Sabbath. Yes, he did, but why did he go into the synagogue on Sabbath? To preach the gospel, (laughs) to reason from the scriptures. He took advantage of a Jewish people meeting on the seventh day to go proclaim the one who raised on the first day. Jesus Christ, our Sabbath rest. That's what he preached, that's who he preached. So there is no mention of a seventh-day gathering in the New Testament. Now, when we get to passages such as Colossians 2, Paul addresses this issue. Verse 16, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? To Christ. Let no one disqualify you on uh, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things all which perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So by laying all these heavy legalistic guidelines upon someone, isn't going to fix anybody. In Romans 14, we'll look at that next. I mean, I mean, here's Paul. To those Jews who were, you know, comfortable and their, their conscience was compelled to worship on the seventh day. Basically, Paul writes, look, that's fine. Just don't attempt to bind the conscience of another believer. In Romans 14, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, the one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. Again, there's no reference to a seventh-day gathering in the New Testament. Very clear. No reference in the New Testament to a seventh-day gathering. So there's the first view, that's seventh-day Sabbatarianism. Another view is what's referred to as Lord's Day Sabbatarianism, or Puritan Sabbath, 
It's also been known as, a Puritan, as the Puritan Sabbath. And this view has attached to it what's known as a transfer theology in that the stipulations of the seventh day are now transferred to the first. As a matter of fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a glorious, great doc, um, uh, document, but it's not the Bible. It claims the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath and a transfer from the seventh to the first. Okay, now here, beloved, is a prime example of tradition-oriented theology, which oftentimes, tradition-oriented theology, runs the risk of actually encouraging an uncritical attitude toward the tradition of the church. As though, for instance, the Westminster Confession of, K- Confession of Faith, which I grew up very familiar with, is authoritative as scripture. Not the case. Traditions that are sometimes good are no less deserving of critical insight, looking into it critically. And we have to remember that church tradition, even at its best, beloved, must always remain subordinate to Scripture. Always. So that good document, I believe, is wrong right there. Some people view the Lord's Day, in our day, as a day infused with restrictions and restraints borrowed from the Mosaic Law. There's many who do. And this is, and I will say this, this is always an issue with hyper-covenantalism. Not knowing where things end and where new things begin. I didn't say covenantalism, firm, solid covenantal view, but hyper-covenantalism. You have a very difficult time knowing where things end and where the new begins. But all that said, this transfer theology seems on the surface to be on the surface to be consistent and logical, but again, there's no New Testament evidence whatsoever about transfer Sabbatarianism. You know, it was actually much later in history that the British Sabbatarians actually um, formalized this view of Lord's Day Sabbatarianism. And then the Puritans popularized that view. With certain infused restrictions on the day. But again, there's no New Testament text that warrants such restrictions or Mosaic law adherence. Again, we must cite Romans 14 and Colossians chapter 2, which communicate to us that that is indeed not the case. So what is the New Testament Lord's Day primarily about, beloved? Quite simply. It's not about primarily about rest from work. What is primarily about the fundamental purpose is about worship. The fundamental purpose of this commandment under the old covenant was about rest. And here we see that the Lord's Day is fundamentally about worshiping. It's about gathering. It's about mutual instruction. It's about coming to the Lord's table. 
with God's people. And we gather having in view the victory of our Sabbath rest, Jesus Christ. The victory of Christ who is our Sabbath rest. This is why we gather. Victory of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. A view to the future, our future hope of, of glory. Where we will enter into perfect and ultimate rest. Okay, so there's two main views. Seventh day Sabbatarianism. Lord's Day Sabbatarianism. Uh, The third uh, main view, there's other little nuances which we don't have time to look at, um, is the third is the fulfilled Sabbath or Lord's Day observance. Now Christians are commanded to gather together, amen? We're commanded not to what? Not to forsake the gathering. Hebrews chapter 10, considering the scripture says how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meeting together for what? To rejoice in his cross, in his resurrection, to pray together, to fellowship together, to come to the table together, to sit under the apostles' doctrine together to receive instruction from the word of God together, to hear the preaching of the word together, and to embrace the truth by faith, which is a gift, this common salvation in which we share. So we're not talking about legalism, beloved. Amen? We're not talking about legalism or old covenant Sabbath laws being imposed upon us. But we must ask the question, does grace require any less of us with regard to worship? Certainly not. Absolutely not. We're instructed in Ephesians to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So quite simply, the focus of the Lord's Day ought to be not what we can't or shouldn't do, but rather the privileges, that which we what? Get to do. What we get to do. Shouldn't be a nuisance. Our gathering shouldn't be a burden. You know, a burden to our busy life schedules, basically. It should be a benefit and, and a joy and an honor Gathering together, receiving instruction, hearing the gospel, being reminded of the gospel. You're going to be reminded of the gospel today. You're going to be reminded of why God loves you today. You're going to see Paul uh, defining for us the benefits of being justified by faith alone. And why God has beset his love upon you. That's what you'll be reminded of today, which ought to... which ought to build up in you assurance. That's his focus when we get to the sermon this morning. We're to make use of our spiritual gifts. We're called to edify one another. Well, to do that, we have to be together, amen? And the primary time and place in which we do that is right here on what we know as Lord's Day, the first day of the week. 
And it's not whether or not it's convenient driving from El Cajon to the beach. Amen? It's kind of a pit stop. No. It's a privilege. So all that to say is I'm running out of time. It's not clear as to any list, beloved, of do's or don'ts that are to to be adhered to on Lord's Day. Paul's made it clear it's a matter of conscience. And, And some people's conscience is bound to certain things on the Lord's Day, and that's perfectly fine. I know people whose conscience, solid, loving, godly Christians, whose conscience is bound on the Lord's Day to resist from all amusement. All work without exception. And if their conscience is bound in that way, that's fine. But don't press it on your brother. At the end of the day, the Christian's conscience is bound by what? Scripture. As led by the Holy Spirit. So specific details of of, of observance on the Lord's Day may vary from house to house, and that's perfectly fine. You may be bound in your conscience, okay, as a Christian, on Lord's Day, on Sunday, not to go to restaurants of any kind, not to go to any store, not to go to the park. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. But please, don't block the entrance to the restaurant if I want to take my wife out to get something to eat, okay? Don't press it on me. Rarely do I go to a restaurant on Sunday just because I'm too tired and I want to go home. But there are times my wife doesn't want to cook. Well, maybe she should do that on Saturday and prepare everything. Maybe she should, and if that's on part of your conscience to do that so that your wife doesn't have to cook, that's fine too. Don't press it on another. Now, you may be bound in your conscience not to take in any kind of entertainment on Lord's Day. Perfectly fine. Amen? You may be bound in your conscience not to participate in any kinds of athletic activities on Lord's Day. That's perfectly fine. But I do not recommend that you go to some brother's homes and turn off their TV when they're middle watching the football game. You get it? Come on. Some guys, for sure, you don't want to do that with. And I don't recommend you do it to me. You may be bound in your mind, in your heart, not to do any kind of labor except acts of mercy on Lord's Day. Many do. That's perfectly fine. But you know what? I love mowing my lawn. I try to keep my lawn pristine, green, watered, cut, edged. I get great enjoyment out of it. It is no labor for me. Now, I did it yesterday because I want to sit on my front porch this afternoon with my wife and enjoy looking at it. But there's nothing like fresh cut grass. Just the smell of it, right, Mark? The smell of it, baby. (laughs) So I may want to do it on Lord's Day. And I don't want to see anybody in their car with their binoculars trying to bust the pastor for mowing his yard on the Lord's Day, right? That's ridiculous. That's what we must not do. So all that to say, we're not, gonna, we're not here to drop any external rules on you. We don't see it in Scripture. We're not under old covenant regulations. We're not under a system of condemnation. We don't need shadows, beloved. 
We have the reality, and that is Christ, and our true rest is in Christ. So this is a day to rest, not in the rest in the sense of celebrating creation, as some believe it to be, but this rest in the sense, is in the sense of celebrating the new creation. Salvation. In our Sabbath rest, Christ. So I really don't think it's that complicated. And I have brothers. I have dear brothers. Their wives, they're insistent that their wives prepare all the meals on Saturday for Sunday. That's great. That's cool. Don't try to tell my wife that because she actually enjoys cooking. You get the picture, beloved. So does this mean you can't do some work in the afternoon? No. Does this mean you can't tend your garden, water plants, things like that? No. Does this mean you can't run, work out? No. You may be convicted not to do those things, and that's fine. It's perfectly fine. What does it mean? The Lord's Day, it does mean this. This is a day that is ordained for us to have our primary focus on the work and worth of Christ together. Amen? Together. So if your conscience happens to be clear in the area that you have convinced yourself that you don't have to gather on the Lord's Day, your conscience is now diluted. Okay? Your conscience is diluted. Because we're called to gather and not to forsake that gathering. So we're all bound by the scriptures to gather together, to worship together as the body of Christ, gospel-centered, cross-centered, worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This we know. And there is no alternative here to opt out. There is no alternative here to sit in front of the screen of the computer at what's known now as cyber church. Because if you do cyber church, there's no accountability. There's no chance to to utilize the gifts of the Holy Spirit in you and through you. And you know, a lot of ministry goes on right out here in this hall. A lot of ministry goes on right in there in the fellowship hall. Ministering to one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, praying for one another. Happens all the time. See, that's ministry too. And in addition to that, I'll close with this. You can't worship together with the body of Christ if you only bring your body without your heart. Right? So I draw on God's grace to change my heart, to conform my heart, if this is a drag, if this is a burden. Right? It's really simple. There are no heavy regulations laid down on the people of God. Amen? Amen. Perfect timing. Providential timing right there. You've got 15 minutes before we open service. Father, we do thank you that our Sabbath rest is your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for what we learn in the Old Testament. That a rest was commanded to your people.
as a people set apart to be an example, a light in the midst of pagan darkness. And Lord, as we enter into the new covenant, we see Christ having fulfilled all things is indeed our Sabbath rest. Lord, may we never take for granted the Lord's Day gathering and the privilege that we have to be here together, to grow together, to learn together, to worship together, to pray together, and to be encouraged, Lord, uh, together and to encourage one another. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live with the burden of some man's expectations upon us to be weighed down, but that we are free in Christ. And may our freedom be one in which we so appreciate and cherish what's been accomplished for us as the people of God, for the glory of God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.